I fell into a ring of fire. I fell in. When you kiss me, fever, when you hold me tight. Fever. Welcome to Fever FM. Tonight we have a special guest, and I'm not just talking Helena with her All Blacks journalism gig on. Uh, hello, Helena from France. Uh, we're also Bonjour joined by Cam. And special guest today is Paul Temple, uh, the manager of the Wellington Phoenix women's team, if I can get that out. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So, first things, Paul, Temps, all of the above. Yep, all of the above's fine. Perfect. Okay, all of the above. Um, the first thing we normally do when we have someone on that we haven't had on before or not for a while is we like to throw the nice general, how did you get here, question. <laughs> um, I've been at the Phoenix for seven years, just over seven years now. So I arrived in Wellington in January 2016 to come and take up a role at the academy as a youth coach. And uh, very shortly after I arrived, um, the academy started to evolve quite quickly and and I uh, I took up the position of academy manager or academy director and I, I did that job for five and a half, six years until um, just recently and, and post uh, under 20 World Cup, which was May, um, I took on this uh, new role. So when I got back from the the World Cup, I, uh, I, I went into the A-League Women Head Coaches role and, uh, and have changed office and are now based off at NZCIS with the, with the club and the two first teams. So, yeah, it's been a, it's been a, a really nice journey um, within the club and coming through the system, so to speak. Um, so it's, uh, it's really nice to now move into a first team and, and be coaching in there. So um, most of us are pretty familiar with you by now, at least in name and uh, title, having been in the club so long. But I've got to admit, I don't know a whole lot about you from before times. I'm guessing by the accent, it's not local. No. So, um, yeah, I'm born in England um, in a little town called Crawley, which is just south of London, um, between London and Brighton for those that are good with English geography. Um, and I actually played, I did the usual English football journey, played and tried to become a professional, um, was basically in the youth team at, at Crawley. And then um, at 19, I got an opportunity to come and play in the National League here in New Zealand um, for University of Mount Wellington, which is up in Auckland. Unfortunately, that club doesn't really exist in in the system at the moment um it's kind of merged of a, a club and is in the lower leagues in auckland but it used to be a big national league club and um and so i came out in 2001 to play for mount wellington national league i did that back and forth to england and and new zealand for probably two or three seasons and then um, in 2003 i uh, stopped going back home to england and and basically moved to new zealand permanently so was based in Auckland from 2001 all the way through to 2016 um, and then as I say in 2016 I moved to Wellington for the role with the Phoenix Academy so um, 
yeah, born in England, but I've actually spent more of my life in New Zealand. So um, I'm a well and truly um, indoctrinated Kiwi now. Um, so coming through the New Zealand coaching system, but being obviously very familiar with the system in the UK at the very least, um, what do you reckon that the, the differences are in our structure versus the UK structure? Yeah, I probably followed quite a different journey, I guess, in the in terms of the coaching because um, I did a UEFA B license when I was eighteen in England. So I came out as a, as a qualified coach when I was playing for Mount Wellington, and that was kind of part of the deal. Obviously, it's not professional league, the national league, so I kind of got a little bit of expense money for playing, and then I coached for Mount Wellington on the side. So I was coaching pretty young. Um, I actually took my first coaching session when I was 16. So yeah, it's been something that I've done since I was very young. And because I got my UEFA B license before I came to New Zealand, I went back to the UK to do my UEFA A license. And so I actually haven't done the New Zealand football coaching system. Um, I, I did do back in 2004, an international coaching license with uh, Ricky Herbert was in charge uh, back then. And so I did a, I did one course in New Zealand way back in 2000, uh, 2004. Um, but apart from that, I've done the English coaching system, but coached purely in New Zealand. Um, I actually haven't coached professionally at all in, in England. So um, it's a bit of a unique journey, I guess. Um, but I think the, the English coaching system is very robotic it's kind of um it teaches you how to pass a course as opposed to necessarily um, how to coach at the highest level um the a license was very prescriptive process um you obviously learn a lot about how everything works but um yeah i i felt that that course was very much kind of the fa had their way and you had to kind of adapt to their way um, whereas i've just recently started my OFC Pro License. So this is the first course I'm doing within the New Zealand Football OFC framework. And I'm really enjoying that. I think that's a really, really well run course at the moment. Um, Sean Douglas out of OFC is leading that process and um, together with High Performance Sport New Zealand. And yeah, I can't speak highly enough of those guys and how the course is running at the moment. So that is very much a more unique approach in terms of um, the individual coach and learning a lot of new skills outside of the X's and O's of tactics. You're learning a lot about um, other things to do with professional coaching, you know, like media and just understanding yourself more and building your own kind of values and models and what you believe in. So that's been a, a good course. So the ones I have done in New Zealand, I, I will speak very highly of this pro license has been awesome so far. Nice. Um, so you've you've obviously been working your way through the um, program, well, all of New Zealand football for the for the most part. Um, when you're going for a role like the the Phoenix Women's, the first team, I mean, I assume you have to do a bit of a pitch. What was what was the pitch about? Yeah, um, yeah. The chairman Rob Morrison um, invited me to to do, I guess, an interview or a or a, a discussion with, with him and some of the senior management about um, what I would do um, in terms of the team. So 
yeah, I, I kind of I had two of these um, interviews with with Rob and the senior management, and really I was just talking about, I guess it's kind of like from a distance, things that I had noticed, things that um, that I would potentially do a little bit differently, things that I potentially thought we could add. Um, so yeah, it was just um, I guess it's a, a normal interview process like anything else, but um, I had the the insights I guess from already being inside the club and kind of within that academy system um, could probably speak a little bit more to youth development and how that kind of flows into the first team both men and women and also kind of what we're trying to do as a club and and build homegrown players and and hopefully ultimately sell homegrown players to the best leagues around the world and that would include the women's side so yeah I kind of had that kind of perspective and, and that insight, I guess, going into those conversations. But um, yeah, I think they were just probably looking for uh, some alternate ideas, and then um, and then obviously we kind of uh, we find ourselves here. So we we I was lucky enough that they probably agreed with some of the things that I said and um, and offered me the role. You, you're in a bit of a unique position in that this is your first coaching uh, first. Um, first team coaching gig with a professional side um, Chiefy's in the same position is this something that you guys kind of touch base with each other and share notes or it's kind of this uh, it's a unique scenario where you have to find your own way yeah I, th- I think a little bit of both to be honest with you um, yeah look the great thing is that NZCIS we're all together the first teams um, so um, my office is literally a few meters away from Chiefies, so we talk a lot. Um, we talk about a whole raft of different things, from how we're setting up tactically to recruitment, uh, you know, just general philosophical things around dealing with players and and running the squad. So it's good that we're able to bounce ideas off each other and and to get different perspective on things because. Um, yeah, I guess I'm kind of coming, as I said before, from that academy side of things in terms of my progression, whereas he's been in the first team with Afi for four years prior. So he's got a slightly different kind of, I guess, skill set coming into it um, for me. So I think it's quite good that we're able to do that. Um, but yeah, we've definitely been talking heaps about it and and keeping each other updated with with how we're doing things and and. Um, yeah, we're. Uh, I think we've probably given each other a few good ideas moving forward. This is probably the first time you've had a, a any budget of note in order to go out and find players. Um, th- that's got to be a bit of a unique experience. And so, how do you go about it without having that background in it at, at this level? And how do you find out about these players? I mean, I'm assuming that there's quite a few of them that there's limited you know, video footage and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, it's it's definitely something that's very new and something that I'm learning as I go. But I guess what's evident from my perspective is that the support that I've had from Sean um, as director of football uh, has been massive and how it works. And just, I guess, to give you guys a bit of an insight into that is... Um, I actually don't do any of the negotiations with contracts or budget or money. Um, so I'm basically scouting all the players, looking at all the footage, doing all the statistics, working out all the 
the data and kind of processing all that information. And then I'm coming to Sean and saying, right, this is the striker that I want. And um, this is where she plays. And here's all the information. And then Sean sends all that information to the football committee. The football committee approve that um, that they'd be a good player to go after. And then Sean starts the negotiation with the agent and the player and I don't have anything to do with it. So in all honesty, like I know roughly what budget I have, but um, Sean in, in his role as director of football is the person that manages that budget, makes sure everyone fits within it, keeps the chairman up to date with how that budget's going. And, and I'm really doing the the football side of it. Um, so yeah, I'm obviously working within a budget and and we've got a certain allocation for the playing squad. Um but my primary role is really just to identify these players and um, and it's been a really good process. We've we've been able to fit in everybody that we wanted into into the budget. So it's been great. Obviously, with just taking on that football side, you've got to be looking for you know specific things uh, from these players. I mean, maybe you have a position in mind, maybe you have a skill set in mind. How do you get to that stage where you go, I'm looking for a person that has X about them? Yeah, so I guess the the starting point of all of that is how do you want to play? Um, so you have to really know what your playing model is. And that doesn't, that's not necessarily like the formation. Um, that's probably a very minor part of it. So how do, what style of football do we want to play? Um, how do I want the team to be set up in terms of attacking, defending, transition? And then the first, I guess, task was to write, here's the squad from last season. Um, which players do I think would be able to fit into the style of play um, that I want to that I want to put out there and which players potentially don't? And so then you go through that first process. And then it was at the beginning, it was about renewing the contracts of the players that we felt would be good for the for the playing model that we were creating. So we we primarily re-signed players at the beginning and kind of got all the players from last season that we were going to keep uh, signed up for the for this season. And then the analysis was then about, okay, where do we have some potential shortfall in terms of specific positions that we see? Um, and uh, look, I don't think it's any secret, right? Last last season, the the team struggled a little bit to score goals, and so the the primary objective was how can we create a more attacking team? How can we get more attacking players that can help us create and score goals? And so, um, right at the start, it was obvious that we needed a a really strong goal scoring number nine, and then potentially some support players in terms of those attacking positions, whether that was wide players or number 10s that could chip in with goals, but also create. So then you start profiling, right, I need a, a number nine. And so with Mariana, for example, the process that we went along with her was scouring the leagues around, okay, which players are going to be really good in the A-League in terms of played at a higher level uh, and, and could really like excel in the A-League and then we looked at characteristics like um, I wanted somebody that had pace and that could be quick so that we could play them in behinds I wanted somebody that could finish all different types of goals um, so we looked at kind of the goals that they score and then it's kind of like a character thing so 
also wanted somebody that was quite humble, willing to work hard. Um, and so once we started talking to Mariana, then I realized that she'd be a really good fit in terms of her character. She's playing for Venezuela, which is a kind of lower ranked South American team. She plays quite regularly. She's kind of playing against big nations. So she knows what it's like to kind of fight against um, bigger teams, like for a smaller team and is trying to help them grow. So similar to our situation. So that uh, you kind of take into account all those different things, really. And then her physical profile, her technical profile was exactly what I was looking for. And then once we had a chat, then I was I was basically my gut told me she was the right one to go for. So um, we sort of pressed go and and went through the process with her agent and and Sean and her agent talked about money and, and we were able to get her here. So that's kind of how it worked really and then you just repeat the same for each position um and so that was kind of the process that we went through you mentioned the style being the starting point um uh new zealand football kind of have a um a bit of a mortgage on the terms positive and brave uh so without using those terms and getting yourself into trouble new zealand football how would you describe the style that you're looking for the team to play um, so that what I want it to be is exciting. Um, and I want it to be energetic. Those would probably be the two main descriptive words that I'd use. I think every coach in the world is going to tell you they want to keep possession. They want to play. They want to, um, they want to play positive forward passes and like lots and lots of coaches talking in that way. And, and so I'd be no different from that perspective, but I think the key elements for me is I want a team that's full of energy that will excite the fans that will excite people watching that will play a, a type of football that will get people excited about the brand but also kind of going to games and being and not being bored uh, I don't want to play boring football um, and I don't want it to just be about results and kind of grinding results out I want it to be about entertaining and and really kind of like stirring those kind of things that football supporters like, which is like that passion and energy in the team. So that's probably one of the real key things. Um, and then there's there's some tactical elements that we'll do quite differently that I think will, will be new to the A-League and new to, to women's football. Um, and so there's that's also going to contribute quite heavily to the style. One of those would be a lot more kind of shorter, sharper passes as opposed to more longer, expansive passes. So, um, yeah, the style of play will will reflect all of those things together, I think. That that sort of um, tactic of the shorter passing, that, that seems to be a, something that uh, takes a longer time to bet in. Is that something you're expecting with the team, just that it's, you know, to get that buy and to get that that feel for playing that way, that that's going to be something that's going to work its way through? Yeah, look, I think there's definitely, as you say, a long-term type of mentality towards this. I mean, if we, if we just look at the Women's World Cup and what we saw from the Women's World Cup, which is right on our doorstep, and so many of the listeners would have been to games around New Zealand and Australia, so they would have seen it firsthand. The, the technical level of the best teams is very high. And so at this point in time, New Zealand is not in the same bracket as those top teams from a technical point of view. So 
we have to be able to produce better technical footballers and long term we need to produce numerous better technical footballers to help the national team and to help grow grow our game so there is a long-term element to it it's something that we've kind of tried to implement into the academy and and i think like you've seen um, if i use the boys side of things as an example you've seen now like the most recent under 20 men's world cups and you'll see the under 17 world cup shortly we've got better technical players now because we've spent a long long time developing these in the youth systems and it's not just the phoenix it's, it's around the country everyone's everyone's doing this so there's a long-term element to it in terms of developing those really good technical girls that can come through our system but then there's also a short-term part of it as well where i actually think our players are, are better than we maybe give them credit for at times and they just need a a way to kind of bring that out a coach that will allow them to do that and believe in them and and say to them Let, let's go and do it like you're capable and i think i've been super impressed by the level in the first two weeks of training from from these players in terms of what i'm asking them to do and their and their openness to be able to to do those type of things and embrace it so that's that's been something that's been a real um, positive for me is is the the technical level the players is they are capable of doing it and yet yeah, some are going to have to work harder than others to kind of build more technical base and keep improving because by no means are we working with the finished article but the intent is great and and the level is actually decent when you when you ask them to do it and you put them into those situations and it's just being brave enough to do it because there's going to be mistakes along the way and it's a it's a process that that you've got to go through you mentioned the women's world cup uh, before about that being kind of a touch point um have you noticed that that's kind of had a, a bit more of a concrete effect around the team, the academy, um, in people you're interacting with? Yeah, I think so. The, the really big thing for me is like reference points because the, the Women's World Cup was on TV in 2019. We watched, I mean, I watched the Football Ferns games um, in France and it was on, I think, the, I watched the one before in Canada. So like those games were on TV, but... Most of the time in New Zealand, we get these World Cups in the middle of the night and it's not always the most like accessible viewing, right? So people will generally get up and watch the New Zealand team or they'll watch the highlights, but then they're not watching the whole tournament. Whereas the biggest difference this time is the whole tournament was right here in front of our eyes. All the games were at good times in the evenings and people got home from work. So, so many more people watched so many more games and so the reference point is now completely different. You can have conversations of girls in the academy with the first team players about all the players, all the teams, who the superstars are, who the new emerging talent is. And everyone else around the world is having those conversations at all these World Cups. But in New Zealand, we've kind of changed the reference point now. And, that's, and I think everyone's got a much better baseline knowledge of who all the best players are in the women's game and who the best teams are and what teams play certain ways whereas I don't think we probably had that before we were maybe a bit more limited to our own national team and what New Zealand was like 
and just who we were playing at that time. Whereas I think the it's a way broader level of understanding around women's football and, and who these emerging players are now. You kind of talked um, uh, before the World Cup about trying to attract some of those players who were coming out there for this. Um, obviously, that didn't really pan out. Was that just a, a bridge too far or was it just... Um, I mean, as you say, the quality was incredibly high from a lot of these players. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Look, I mean, look, it's for most of these girls that are playing at this tournament or at the tournament, sorry, they're just out of our league, really, in terms of being able to attract them to the A-League and being able to attract them to, to come and play at the Phoenix because also the salary cap in the A-League is is pretty low like compared to leagues around the world like one of the big pieces of researches that we did was to try and work out how much these girls are getting paid in all these different leagues and start to sort of target which leagues maybe would be it would be seen as like an upgrade to come to the a-league and what you realize is people are paying these female players a lot more than we are in australia um in the in the a-league so for the league, we need to get up to speed with the rest of the world because we're, we're a little low in terms of salary. And so we need to pay our players better. And that's that's something the A-League will, will need to look at moving forward. And, and I think the positivity out of the World Cup will do that. I, I do believe that the A-League will get up to speed quickly in that space. But um, at this point in time, we're not quite there. So, yeah, look, salary restrictions and... Um, and just the level that they're playing at, um, you'd be absolutely amazed how many times I got text messages from friends, family, people telling me, oh, you should sign sign that girl for Spain. And I, I'd text back and say, you know, she plays for Barcelona and she just won the Champions League, right? That, that, that's not, like, we're never going to get those players. Um, so, yeah, it's it's good. More people are knowing who these players are, but also, like, just we have to understand that the level that these uh, players from Spain and England and um, and even like if you look at the Australian team now, like where all those players are playing their football, it's it's in the WSL in England, it's in it's in Spain in La Liga, it's in uh, NWSL in the states. You know the top players around the world. Um, even just as an example, like South Africa, which is a smaller team in the World Cup, and obviously they got through the group for the first time. Um, their striker, who was awesome, um, Katlana, she she's playing in, w, in the NWSL, and you know her minimum, the minimum salary in that league is sixty thousand US dollars. So it's you know, you're kind of even players like that are are, are operating at a really high level and, and getting paid a lot more. So it's um yeah, it's something that is is difficult. So in the end, we weren't able to attract anybody, and and I think. You know, so far, no other A-League women's team has, has signed anybody from from a, a team in the World Cup either. So I think it sort of shows you where their where their levels at. Um, as far as the a, the A League moving the the women's salaries along, um, uh, I've got a few Australian um, mates and family who were were amazed at how much traction got uh, the uh, Matildas especially got over there uh, do you think that that kind of that sea change as far as income for the women's players is coming in the short term based, backed 
behind that? Or is it one of these things that's going to be a bit of a long-term graft? No, I do think it's coming. And as I said before, I think it needs to come. Um, the the A-League, like APL Co and Football Australia, they want the A-League to be a destination league. So they want it to be somewhere where the best players can come and, and play. And so for you to be able to do that, you have to be comparable in terms of like at least minimum salary retainers. Um, and one of the things that's at the moment holding the A-League women's competition back is the contract lengths are only 35 weeks. And so for the rest of the 52 weeks, they're not contracted. So they've either got to go and play somewhere else or go and earn money somewhere else. So the first step is we need to make these girls 12-month contracts so that they can be paid as professionals all year round like everywhere else around the world. And then the second step is to increase the minimum salary floor to be as close to comparable as some of the better leagues that we could compete with. So like, I don't think the A-League is going to ever be able to compete with NWSL and the WSL in England, um, even the Liga, even Ligue 1 in France. But it can compete with leagues like Italy in the women's space. It could compete with leagues like Sweden in the women's space. Um, and so Portugal, places like that. So to do that, we have to, we have to increase the salary floor a lot so that then we can become comparable and then it's, then we can start to make inroads into those markets and recruiting players from those leagues. But at the moment they just get paid better and they get paid for 12 months and, and we're not doing that in the A-League women at the moment. So that's the, that's the big change we want to see over the next two to three years. And presumably that also alleviates the issue of the the um, the migratory women's player that plays for two and three clubs every calendar year. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the game's changing quickly, and we've and we've got to kind of keep up. Otherwise, we'll fall behind. Um, the US competition like used to work really hand in hand with the A League in terms of players could do both. We saw a lot of and we have been seeing a lot of players come from the US and the NWSL into the A League women. But now that the A League women has gone up in terms of new team with the Mariners, the contract length's been increased to thirty five weeks this year, which is the longest it's ever been. Um, the two competitions don't overlap as well anymore. And so now our end of the season goes into the start of the NWSL. Um, and so it's a lot harder to get players out of that in terms of loans and stuff because the clubs want them back earlier. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, we are going to miss out on those big names that used to come to the league because they could do it in the off season. That's now not as simple as it used to be. And so we will miss out if we don't kind of get to 12-month contracts and, and increase the, the minimum retainers for the players. But then again, that also nobbles Melbourne City from throwing a bit of cash around to get some, <laughs> some uh, late-term star power. Yeah, and look, um, you know, we've we've kind of tried to be as competitive as possible in the market this year in terms of like we've brought four visa players into the squad for the first time bringing visa players in in the women's space um those big teams in the league the victories the cities the sydney fcs and the women's space they they've been bringing out those kind of more visa player marquee players for a while now and and it helps add a lot of value to the squad so we're into that space this year which is exciting for us and 
and yeah, we're looking for those players to help us progress and, and kind of kick on. One of those visa players you've signed is uh, Riley Foster, the Canadian keeper. Um, it's viewed as a bit of a risky signing, a gamble, uh, having come off a rather serious neck injury. What was the clincher for you bringing her over here? I think like when when people go through those type of events, when players have like in her, if you talk about her as a person, you talk about her as a player, they're they're two different things. Um, if you're talking about it just purely as a player, then yeah, she's had she's had some pretty horrific injuries in the last twenty four months, and has obviously not played a huge amount of football because of that. Um, but the rehab process, you often find like when players have longer term injuries, they they put so much into rehab that they come back stronger from that. Um, like if you look at the recent case of say Alex Rufer and his ACL. You know, he's put in so much time in the gym and so much time in his recovery that he's actually stronger than he was before he got the injury. So he's kind of a better, stronger version. And so when you go through this, like Riley has, she's had to do so much rehab and so much work gone into building her body up and making her stronger than before that she's now stronger than she was before the accident. And then if you talk about her as a person what she's gone through and the resilience that that's built in her and how that's kind of changed her outlook on life and how she's going to come in with uh, that kind of maturity and, and a real sense of purpose. And she wants to be a pro again. And she's, she's shown how much she wants to do that by doing the rehab. You know, if, if that passion wasn't there, she wouldn't have gone through what she's had to go through to get to this point. So you're now getting this like stronger version of a player and a stronger version of the character. And that's kind of how I like to look at it with her is that we're getting this better version and more rounded version than she was before. And, and that's going to help us. And, and in turn, we can help her rebuild um, her, her professional career. And, and she's going to bring all of this new stuff to the table. And, um, and yeah, it's, I think it's good. It's going to give some perspective to the dressing room Um and she's a real bubbly character. Um, she's got a great personality. And so I, I think, you know, we're bringing in somebody that's just a little bit different and gone through some different things in life. And, and that's a good thing for the dynamic and the environment. Um, <clears throat> with bringing this visa, the visa players in now, um, obviously this mitigate, that kind of slightly mitigates the the player drain potentially from having a second New Zealand side coming in. Um, even with those visa players, does it feel like there's enough of a base of uh, players coming through academy, female players coming through academies that are going to be able to populate both a Knicks side and a potential Auckland side? Um, yeah, it's a hard question to answer. I mean, it's yeah, it's a good question because it looks very likely like that's going to be the case um, with a second team in, in the A-League and had that Auckland-based team. So it is going to really stretch the resources. Um, and I think you could probably argue both ways, really, that there's maybe not going to be enough, but you could also argue that it gives the opportunity to younger players and they might get pushed in and, and given those opportunities to play professionally potentially earlier than expected. 
and sometimes that works out. Um, it worked out last year. We had um, Millie Clegg obviously come from a local Auckland league and went straight into the A League and, and did really well. And um, there's Ruby Nathan that's come from Auckland and same kind of pathway and gone into Canberra this year. So um, there's another young New Zealander there. And there's certainly like a few bubbling away in the backgrounds. We've got some really good talent in our academy. I know there's some really talented young girls that are playing around the country that we've got our eye on as well. So um, there is the talent out there. Um, and, and really, you just kind of need to bring it into your environment and kind of, I guess, help develop those players like over a period of time. Um, and it's up to them as to whether or not they make the relevant kind of steps in time. And then that's where the visa players come in. If you don't have uh, a local player or a homegrown player that can do the job that you need them to do at that point in time in that position, that's where you go and get a visa player. And, um, and that was kind of, that's a good case. Like when you talk about um, Riley, because, you know, we have Brianna um, who was awesome last season and as a New Zealander, um, and if you look at the football ferns and the goalkeepers that are available um, around the football ferns, the two under 20 national team goalkeepers are both with the Phoenix Academy and, and training with the first team now. And then there's Brianna, there's Erin Naylor, who's at Bayern Munich. There's Victoria Essen, who's playing over in Scotland for Rangers. And then there's Anna Lee, who's in the WSL for Aston Villa. So the goalkeeping pool, that is it. And so if there's... If there's Outside of that, you've got to kind of go and and uh, and get players from overseas. So um, if there isn't those kind of local options, then that's where you have to kind of dive into the visa market and use them to as a kind of like a, a way to propel the team forward. And then you've got to kind of develop someone underneath to take over from them at some point in the future. Tim, looking just on the 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 talent side of the of the. Uh, equation, you have signed some exciting young players out of that academy, out of our academy. I'm looking particularly at people like Macy Fraser. What can we expect from her and the other scholarship players, Daisy and Manaya and Olivia this season? What, what, what can we expect to see coming from them? Um, look, I think people are going to be very excited when they watch them play because um, they're very technical all of them. So that was kind of one of the big criteria for me in terms of promoting them at this point is their ability on the ball and, and their technical quality. Um, but also there's some there's some real um, drive and determination in those girls as well um, that will that will kind of propel them in the in the direction that we want. Um, that Macy is probably the most ready in terms of being ready to play in the league. She's a little older than the other ones that you've mentioned. And uh, and I've been a big fan of hers since she came to the academy a few years ago. Um, I think she's an amazing player, um, extremely technically good. Arguably, in my opinion, maybe one of the technically best players in New Zealand. Um, she just hasn't had the stage to shine yet. And so um, this is kind of for her now. Um, if she continues to do well in training and and kind of deserve her opportunity then she's gonna she's gonna get a chance to show people what she can do um she's very good on the ball 
you'll get somebody that will be able to pass it and get out of trouble and and beat pressure. Um, but you'll also see a creative side where she's very good with final pass. She scores goals from outside the box. I've seen her score numerous long-distance goals um, from outside the box. So she's a goal-scoring attacking midfielder um, who likes to be in possession and likes the ball at her feet. And she's very creative. So I think, um, yeah, fans are going to really enjoy watching her play. Uh, so you've, um, you're obviously new coming into the side and you're bringing in new visa players and you've got quite a few scholarship uh, players and the like coming through. That's a lot of change uh, to integrate into a team in a short amount of time. So how, how has it gone? How's that preseason gone? And what are you looking to get out of that uh, trip to New South Wales? Yeah, the, look, the preseason is a massive challenge. Like, I can't, I can't tell you how challenging it is. It's, it's five weeks, which is already extremely short. Not many teams around the world do a five-week preseason. Some do, some do a quick six-week preseason. Uh, most would do sort of eight. The men do twelve. Um, so five weeks is tough to get everybody fit and ready to go. It makes it incredibly hard that there is a 12-day international window right in the middle of it and so we've obviously lost um, six players to this international window so we kind of don't see them at the moment and all of those things that add to it you say you're trying to create a new kind of I guess team culture and environment because as you say there's lots of new faces and and it's a different kind of uh, vibe around the place you're trying to bring all of that together with players going away, and then we've got we've got some other kind of situations with Michaela Foster, who's who's away with supporting her dad and on sort of family leave, and then we've got Kelly Brown, who's just finished this weekend in the NPL. So um, we actually haven't had a training session with all our players here yet. So, and we're sort of two weeks into preseason, so it's very very challenging. Um, but as I sort of mentioned briefly before, the response that I've had from the girls so far has just been amazing. They've, they've, they've taken to everything. They're, they're doing absolutely everything that all the staff are asking of them in the gym, on the training pitch, in, in between sessions, in their off days, everything. They're, they've been great. And the team atmosphere is building nicely. So the, what we really want to get from this trip to, to Gosford is the opportunity to have all of the squad together for the first time um, and it's like a camp really it's a training camp so we'll be together you know breakfast lunch and dinner on the grass off the pitch um, we'll be doing all different things together plus we've got two games against A-League opposition where we can really sort of try what we're what we're looking to do against A-League teams and players can play together before that first game of the season um, but yeah, if I was designing a, an ideal preseason, it wouldn't be this one um, because it's, there's lots of challenges. But it's um, but that's just what it is, and and we've got to kind of deal with that. Um, but the players have been great so far. Um, one other change that's kind of come your way is the change in home venue, going from Sky Stadium to Jerry Collins Stadium. Um, how's everyone feeling about that? Yeah, pretty excited. I think. Um, look, I. Sky Stadium is obviously an, an awesome stadium. Um, when it was full for the World Cup games, it was it was so great um, to be there and and to be part of that. But the reality is is that we're not filling that stadium for the games, and so 
sometimes it can feel a little empty um, and the atmosphere is hard to generate in that type of scenario. So the feeling is to go to a slightly smaller scale stadium um, and fans can be closer to the action. Um, fans can be kind of right up on the pitch. You can even watch it at pitch level, standing like you would do with uh, National League games and stuff. So it kind of brings football a little bit closer hopefully generate the atmosphere. If we can pack out Jerry Collins, there'll be a good kind of vibe, good atmosphere to the games. And then with the long term of like building enough of a, a crowd and a fan base that we could go to bigger stadiums later on and and uh, return. But for now, we need to kind of uh, look at different options. And, and we just thought with the upgrades that we've had with the Women's World Cup, Newtown Park, Jerry Collins um, were two venues that were were really attractive in terms of the playing surface is now incredible and and they've had some facility upgrades so it made a lot of sense Mm. i mean i'm sure uh lily olfeld would be thankful for not having to yell quite so loudly from the (laughs) stands too um speaking of uh the lily olfeld winners cup (laughs) talk us through that yeah um i like you see you see lots don't you on social media now like match day minus one um teams do like the little competition and they post winning team photos and stuff like that so just wanted to be a little different and um and sort of once it's not every week but once every week to 10 days we'll do a training session that we'll call competition day and basically they get put in a team at the start of training and they keep in the same team for a variety of different drills, games, exercises, and small-sided games, and they accumulate points over the course of the training session. They're competing with each other um, over that training session, and then the winning team um, is the team that gets to to lift the Lily Alfield Cup at the end of it. So it was a little nod to Lily and and that she's uh, still with us, and, and we're thinking of her, and just a way for us to kind of make a training session really competitive and... And we chose to use that type of session as opposed to a match day minus one to to do like a, a team winning team photo and, and things like that. Um, and they're in a different team every week, so it kind of mixes it up. And um, and yeah, that's just kind of what we're doing with that. It, it's a hell of a nod to be naming a, a, even a you know a <laughs> practice session cup after someone that you know realistically could be could be playing next year for you. Is that kind of speak to um, the effect she has around the team? Yeah, I just think everyone's so fond of her, you know. Um, I've known her a long time, even though, you know, I wasn't with the team last year. She was actually my goalkeeper in the under-17 Women's World Cup in 2012. So I've known Lily a while and she was an awesome kid then. Um, and she's uh, she's just such a good person. I think everyone's kind of very aware of the positivity that she has and the influence that she has. So, um yeah, we're working hard on some solutions to get her back to Wellington and for her to be able to rehab with us and and um, and have a job with us and, and be, yeah, part of the team uh, until she can get herself back to kind of playing again and then she can kind of hopefully integrate back into the into the playing team again. But, um, yeah, we, uh, we love having her around, so hopefully it won't be too long until she's back in Wellington with us. But, um, yeah, I think the team are very fond of her for sure. Is that kind of, uh, we've heard this from Domi as well, um, is it uh, is it more of a first team kind of we want to keep around or is it uh, getting her through the academy to kind of 
you know, to talk talk people into, you know, how how to get how to go about being a professional. Yeah, I mean, look, from my point of view, like I just want her to be able to she's gonna have to go through like a operation and then like a, a serious amount of rehab now to kind of get back and so that road is is hard, you know, and, and players struggle mentally physically with the challenges that that rehab creates so if you can do that in an environment where you've got supportive people where you've got all the facilities that we have available in terms of the medical team here and the gym and and things that entered cis like this is the best place for her to rehab and it keeps her connected to us we can look after her directly and um and that's kind of what we want to do um so from that perspective that's the reason why we want to get her back but i also think that everybody in the club values her and her skill sets and her communication and her influence highly as well and so i think domi's working with uh, with lily on potentially some ways in which we can get some work with the club while she's rehabbing and, and use her skill sets um, across the club and that would yeah, include academy first teams community things like that i'm going to pivot slightly um mainly because i uh, my questions aren't able to be linked quite together as well as I hoped. Um, <laughs> you've got a bit of a unique perspective in that you've come through both the uh, men's and uh, women's side and have come through academy and high and the um, senior levels. Uh, um, and I'm c- including the New Zealand sides as well. Um, some of the, you know, the older junior sides like the twenties and seventeens. Um, You've got a unique perspective, I think. Kind of what's the difference between coaching men's and women's and coaching um, development and seniors? Um, Okay, so two quite different things. So difference between coaching development and seniors is all about results. So in senior football, it's all about winning and getting results and the reality is if i don't win any games this season i probably won't be back next season so it's kind of that's the the result business right senior football first team football um whereas development is you haven't got the pressure on the results and you've got more time um to to i guess kind of create what you want to in terms of the development of these players and and um, you're willing to kind of go through all of the troughs a little bit more in terms of it's not always a kind of clear road to the top and you're kind of supporting players all the way through that process. Now, that kind of development still happens in the first team because you've got young players in the first team that still need that kind of, I guess, care and, and also a little bit more time to get to where they need to get to. Um, so you kind of got the balance, but then you've also got this thing, which is there's clubs got supporters got fans owners owners etc people want teams to be successful uh, and so you kind of have to get the balance whereas in youth development that that doesn't really the balance is swayed way more to to the development as opposed to the winning whereas in the first team it, it kind of shifts a little bit more um in terms of male and female there's not a huge amount of difference i think good coaches can work across both um because players are players and the football is football and there's not there's not too many things that are massively different there I think um, perhaps what I've found is that I think the female players are a little bit more um, 
intuitive in terms of they want to understand the why a lot more. And so when you're talking about kind of, we're going to employ this tactic, or we're going to employ this thing, or we want you to be able to do this, quite often you have, you get the why, like, why do we do this? And why do we do that? And why do you want us to, to play like this? Whereas I think like the, the male players are a little bit more just kind of like, yep, yeah, okay, fine. How do we do that? And how do we get good at it? And so um, those that's probably the main difference, I would say. Um, and at the at the top levels, the the game is a little different in terms of. I think the the men's game is very very athletic now. Like at the top level, like the the speed is is incredible. Um, and I, I saw that firsthand when we played Argentina in the Under Twenty World Cup. Just mind blowing how how quickly these players think and and execute their their technique um, compared to our players. So the speed of the game at the top level is extremely high. Um, whereas I think when we saw the Women's World Cup, the the top level of the women's game is very tactical in terms of getting advantage from a tactical point of view. Um, so perhaps a little bit more tactical for the women, perhaps a bit more athletic in the men's, but same things still apply across both, like, if you've got the best players, um, whether they're male or female, like your team's going to win more games and they're going to create those moments. So there's still way more similarities than I guess than there are differences, I think. Nice. Um, right, I'm going to throw this open to the floor in case uh, anyone's got some questions they want to throw out in the remaining 10 minutes we've got. And radio silence. I'm going to take that as I, I've done a good job, to be honest. Um, and I'm going to say that you've done a great job, uh, Temps. That's uh, some fine answering going on. Thanks. I've got a question. Oh, Go for it. Crack it. Well, as, uh, as I guess, representatives of the fan group, what do you, th- what do you guys, A, oh, it's a two-part question, what do you guys want to see from the first teams main men and female and also b do you think it's realistic that we can be the best in terms of fan engagement and supporters crowds crowd numbers i mean i think we have the a league record for regular season games in the women from last year for the first game could we beat that do you think i think you can i think there's every possibility. I'm quite positive about things generally, so <clears throat> probably not the best yardstick to make, but I genuinely believe that there, whilst the bounce from the World Cup will still be there, it won't be as large as it could have been, but it could certainly push us over the 5,500 for the first game. I could, I could see people going, actually, I will go to a game and it will be the first one, and if we can you know, start with the fire, then we may be able to get that bounce further on into the season as well but it's certainly i don't think we'll be getting you know sell out crowds or anything you know ridiculous like that but i certainly see us getting about so we could do that um and fan engagement wise uh obviously we've actually got really good fan engagement across our social media platforms but that doesn't always translate into people coming through the gate so I'm not sure we can relate both of those things. Does that make sense? Um, I think the number of people coming through the gates is entirely dependent on the results on the field. Because, you know, 
fair weather fans are going to turn up if we win games and uh, they're not going to turn up if we don't and the hardcores are going to turn up no matter what uh, and they're always going to be engaging with things so I think the biggest thing we could do is winning on the field will make a massive influence to what happens on the in the terraces as well yeah I, I'm um, I'm the first game I'm, I'm quite confident that you know there'll be some reasonable numbers and I think going out to Paroa is a bit of a wild card um, so if I was the club, I'd be, uh, I'd be walking around to Tawa and all those local clubs to try and get them bought into getting, you know, getting players, getting kids, getting whole teams into Pororoa just to kind of keep those numbers ticking through. First game, yeah, it's grand, you know, you get a big turnout, but if all of a sudden it turns out that no one wants, you know, it's difficult to get to Pororoa, that's, you know, the last thing you want is one big turnout and then it just trickling off the rest of the season. To be fair, I think, like, what you were saying about the style of football you want to play and also from my perspective, seeing the players that you signed, I think it's going to be a brand of football that New Zealanders don't often get to see especially, for example, I've played futsal against Macy for many years. I know how technical she is. I think that's quite a different offering. And I think that if the results start coming, then actually there might be a link there with the fans saying, oh, this is, you know, this is not your usual. This is something interesting. And that could be a real draw card because some of the players, I think, you know, could create really special moments. And at the World Cup, that's what people kind of got a taste for. So... I'm quite excited, and I'm the most negative person on the pod. So, <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. That's a that's a that's a title that you and Frosty can have an arm wrestle over. Yeah, it's definitely me. I've been cynical since I was eight years old, <laughs> and you're so proud of that. I am. It wasn't that long ago, Lane. <laughs> yeah, true. Actually, <laughs> it's quite long ago. <laughs> Interesting. That's good. Yeah, I think like. What you were saying, Helena, like that one's a big thing for me is just making sure that the football side of things is taken care of. You know, like there's there's only so much we can control about like people getting to certain venues and things like you say, and it might open up different fan engagement in different parts of Wellington. But if we can make sure that the football's good to watch and, and the and they're enjoyable to to come and support, then that's the that's probably the first big uh big tick in the box right and then um hopefully the the engagement and the and the crowds follow from there yeah if we've learned nothing else uh a good summer and good football uh tends to get people into whatever stadium it's at um i think we're coming up on our time now before we run out of three minutes because yellow fever budgets are always a bit stretched um thanks temps for coming along really appreciate it mate um Good luck for the season. Hope you get exactly what you want out of it. Um, and you'll no doubt see some of our faces slightly larger than the tiny little box they are in at the moment uh, alongside the field. Um, so thank you all for listening um, and good night.